The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And I've chosen this text for the Christmas message today, even though many, and maybe some of you, most of you perhaps, wouldn't think of this as a, as a Christmas text. As soon as we hear that the preacher is turning to Romans chapter 1, I don't know about you, but my thoughts immediately go to verse number 18 and following. And there we are, we are just plunged into the radical depravity of man and You know in our theology here in this church that the radical depravity of man is something that we often talk about and really is the reason that we need a Savior to come into the world. But thankfully, before Paul began verse number 18, he gave us two other verses, and that is uh, important verses. Verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And certainly we do need those verses before we are plunged into that description of our terrible condition, the condition of humanity in those following verses. We are depraved. We are without God. We are without hope in the world unless God should come to us. We are without hope. And we're without hope until God sent his son into the world. So thousands of years ago, God made a promise that he would become man, that he would be the seed of the woman that would crush that old serpent, the devil. When we think of Christ, first and Foremost, we should think of verses 16 and 17 where, where, where Paul talks about the gospel of Christ. And when we speak of the birth of Christ, it's, it's only a prelude to the work of the gospel, although a supremely important, indispensable uh, uh, thing that must happen for the gospel to be true. And the only reason that we know of Jesus today, the reason that we, we speak of him, because he is the gospel incarnate. Otherwise, we would never be concerned with the birth of one baby in a distant land thousands of years ago. It's because God became man. Now, the purpose of the gospel, then, is to reveal Jesus Christ. And if we are to consider the primary purpose of his entrance into the world, it is the gospel. He is the Savior of mankind because God incarnate is the only way that any person can be saved. Now, if you'll look at our text, the apostle uh, gives insight into the necessity of Christ's incarnation. And here he writes, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship 
for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice in verse number one that Paul said that he was separated under the gospel of God. There he means that he was sanctified, that he was set apart from others of the Jews for the purpose of the gospel. When he wrote in Galatians, or wrote to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 115, he said that the time of his separation was from his mother's womb. Or that is, before he was born, God called him by his grace. It's not strange that Paul would be called the apostle of grace. Often we refer to him that way because when he writes, grace is often the theme. And he was grateful that God chose him before he was born. Because if he were to consider his life what he was before he became a Christian, there is no way that anybody would say or Paul himself would say that he would be a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he was thankful that God separated him from the womb, that it was God's choice that changed him uh, to preach the Christ that he before hated. In the 16th verse of Galatians 1, he wrote that God called him by his grace to reveal in him his son, that is to reveal Jesus Christ in him through the preaching of the gospel. And so it is when we speak of the gospel, we speak of Jesus Christ. And in our text, Paul said that he was separated under the gospel of God. And then here he tells us what the gospel of God is. And or rather, maybe I should say he tells us who the gospel is. In verse number 3, the gospel concerns Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is Christ and it is only Christ. In verse number 2, he is the one that God promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, importantly, as Paul writes this, he, he shows us that Jesus Christ was pre-existent. He shows us that before he was born in Bethlehem, that he was God. And you may say, where do we see that? Where is that in the text? Well, in verse number 3, it says that he was made of the seed of David. In other words, he was something else. That he existed as something else. And then... He was made of the seed of David, and he was God. He existed before, and then he was made of the seed of David. Now, the seed of David, you see, is a reference to the incarnation. And so, in the incarnation, it was God that became man. Now, he retained all the attributes of God. He never gave up any of that. Uh, he had all of that, but he took on him the nature of man. John the Baptist made an interesting statement about the pre-existent Jesus. He recognized that. Uh, we've, we've all read the, the Christmas story and how in Luke chapter 1, uh, it talks about the birth of John the Baptist and how his birth preceded the birth of Christ. We read that just a minute ago in, in Luke chapter 1, where the angel said to, to Mary that your cousin Elizabeth is also with child. She's going to have a baby, but she's already pregnant six months. So we read about that, and we read how the birth of John the Baptist preceded the birth of Christ. And so Luke doesn't begin his story with Jesus. He begins it with John. And there was an angel that appeared to Zacharias, John's father, and told him that his wife Elizabeth would have a son. Now, uh, John was one of those miracle babies 
uh, like Isaac in the Old Testament. Zacharias and Elizabeth were old. They were past the time of bearing children. And the angel appeared to Zacharias and told him that it would change. He said, Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Now remarkably, just like Paul, the angel said that this child is called by God. He isn't yet born, but he from the womb shall be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you see how important that is, but it, it sort of appears to me that if I read the Bible correctly, that there's a pattern that emerges here, that God calls us before we ever thought to call on Him. And that's not just a New Testament thing, that's also Old Testament. Jeremiah said the same about himself. He said that before he was born, that God called him to be a prophet. And we would have to ask, is that peculiar to a few? Well, not exactly. Because Paul said, this is what happens with all believers. They're all chosen from the foundation of the world. Before they knew God, God called them, or God knew them. And in time, he calls them to the salvation for which he chose them. But going back to John the Baptist, he made a remarkable, a remarkable statement about Jesus. John was born six months before Jesus, about six months. And then were, when both were about the age of 30, John was baptizing in Judea. And he saw Jesus approaching. In John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Isn't that an amazing statement? John declared him to be the Savior of the world, and then he said, He was before me. No, he wasn't. He was born six months after John. How could he be before him? Now, that is a very interesting dilemma, because John was a relative. John knew his mother. John knew Joseph. John knew his brothers and sisters. Those would be John's cousins. He knew when Jesus was born, and yet John said, He was before me. So what could he mean by that? Well, he meant that before Jesus became the seed of David, before he was born in Bethlehem, that he was the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. He was God in heaven before he was Jesus, the man on earth. Perhaps the most astounding verse of Scripture that's ever been written was John 1.14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, Jesus Christ, that is God, was made flesh. And doesn't that correspond exactly with what we just read in Romans 1 verse 3? Jesus Christ was made of the seed of David. He was made flesh because he wasn't flesh. He was God. He was God. He was the triune God who was a spirit in heaven. Well, then, for what purpose was he made flesh? Well, in John 1.18, the Scripture says that he became flesh to show us God, that is, to visibly show us the Father. Now, I'd like for, uh, to spend a few minutes today discussing reasons that God became incarnate. Why did God become flesh? And the first reason I want to give you is according to that verse of John 1.18, Jesus became man to show us the Father. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He 
hath declared him. No person has seen God. No person can see God in his magnificent light of his glory. God is dwelling, or God dwells in brilliant light, in brightness above the sun, so there's no one who can see him. God came to earth and he became flesh so that we could see him. And Jesus, as we read in Hebrews, was the brightness of his glory. Paul said in Romans 1 that God showed himself in the creation. He said there is no excuse for anyone to know that there isn't a God. The psalmist said that the heavens declare the glory of God. He also said that there are only fools will say that there is no God. But neither the psalmist nor Paul said you can see God visibly in the creation. You can't see God. So why didn't God just stay in heaven? Why didn't he let the heavens declare him? It's both Romans and, and, um, and the Psalms tell us. It's because the heavens don't reveal God personally. The heavens can't show us the righteous character of God. The heavens don't tell us how we can live with him and how we must be righteous as he is righteous. The heavens never tell us how that we can know God personally and see God personally. The creation tells us there is a God. But it doesn't tell us how to know him relationally and what are his requirements of eternal life. Now, people have always known, this is, this is a common belief throughout the history of man, that there is life after death. But people aren't sure about that life after death. They don't know what will happen to him. They have no hope, but they know that there is life after death. They just don't know what will happen to them. Well, Jesus came to show us God and to tell us about these things. In other words, God showed himself by becoming human flesh. Jesus told Philip, Philip, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus before was the pre-existent spirit God, but then he became the visible God in the flesh. Now at Christmas, we read several texts that refer to the birth of Christ. You are familiar with Isaiah 9. You're familiar with Matthew chapters 1 and 2, Luke chapters 1 and 2, Galatians 4, 4, and so on. One of my favorites is in the Old Testament prophecy of Micah. Micah was contemporary with Isaiah. He supplements Isaiah's prophecy of the incarnate Son of God. And in his prophecy, chapter 5, verse number 2, he said, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah... Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now if you'll notice the last part of that verse, he says, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So Micah didn't write about someone who would come into existence, but someone who has already been here. He shall come forth, that's future. But he says his goings are from old, from everlasting. Now there Micah might be talking about, about God existing or Christ existing before the creation. But I think that he more speaks of that this person who is coming has been active already. This person has already been in the world. This prophecy tells us that the Son of God is eternal, that he was doing something. In Ephesians, Paul told us something about what he was doing, that familiar verse. 
uh, in verse number 4, Ephesians 1, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So before we were born, just as Paul, just as John the Baptist, just as Jeremiah, Christ was in heaven representing us before the Father. He knew us. He knew our names. He determined that we would be holy and without blame before him. Now the only way that he could see us holy was that he determined to make us holy because as we read Romans chapter 1 in those verses I referred to earlier, the radical depravity of man, God sees nobody holy. God never looks down through the corridor of time and sees somebody will be holy. No, God must determine to make them holy. So at the right time, he would come into the world to be given a human body and he would die to redeem us from our sins. But if you could hold your thoughts for just a moment about that incarnation in Bethlehem, Micah wrote of him as one who had been here before. No one has seen God at any time. So how did anybody in the Old Testament prior to the birth in Bethlehem see God? There's only one visible manifestation of God, and that's the Son. God is revealed to us always, only, in one way, by the Son, Jesus Christ. So I want to take you to a few verses in the Old Testament and show you that before Bethlehem, God appeared in the flesh. Now, of course, he wasn't known by the name Jesus because that name wasn't given until the angel Gabriel said to Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. But nonetheless, it was the same one and only Son of God that appeared. Now, you'll see that there are some scriptures noted on your listening sheet. Uh, you, if you want to keep up with me, you can turn to those as we go, and, and uh, then you can follow along with the reading. The first of these is in Genesis chapter 12, and this is a significant part of scripture uh, because this is the call of the man who would be the head of the race, the head of the race of the people through which the Messiah would come. And he's also the spiritual head of the faithful, that is, all who believe in God to the saving of their souls. In Genesis 12, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. How did God appear? No one has seen God. No one can see God and live. And the only visibility of the Father is the Son. So here it must be the Son of God that appeared to Abram before he was born in Bethlehem. The one who is from everlasting, the one who goes forth to do the Father's will, this is the one who spoke to Abraham. Now if you'll turn a few pages to the 17th chapter in verse number 1, here is another significant event in Abram's life. He was 99 years old. He had no children to inherit the land that God promised to, to give him and his children. And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. The Lord appeared. How? This is the Son of God. 
Now it's nearly mind-blowing for us to understand that when Jesus appeared to Abraham to promise a son, he promised himself. Because if Isaac hadn't been born, neither would Jesus have been born 19 centuries later in Bethlehem. And so he appeared to assure that he would appear again. And he would come in the body that the angel said, this will be the one who will save his people from their sins. Now if you go a few more pages to Genesis 28, this time God appeared to Jacob. And in a most peculiar way, Jacob traveled from Beersheba to Haran. He stopped to spend the night and he laid down to sleep and he began to dream. In verse number 12, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. Go down to verses 16 and 17. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Do we need proof this is an appearance of the Son of God? Well, hold your place there while I read to you from John 1, verse 51. And he saith unto them, that is, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Henceforth ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so that ladder that Jacob saw in Genesis represents Jesus Christ, that he is the ladder, he is that bridge, he is the only way between earth and heaven. Jesus is from everlasting. So the one that Jacob saw standing at the head of that ladder was none other than Jesus Christ. Pre-existent, the pre-existent God. Let me show you another. If you'll turn to Genesis 32, again, this is Jacob, and this time he wrestles with the Son of God. Genesis 32, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him. Notice very carefully, it says, a man. There wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, that is the man said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, that is Jacob said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. Who was it that blessed Jacob? Well, we go down to verse number 30. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. No man has seen God and lived. No man can see God in his glory. So how did uh, Jacob see him face to face? And how could he wrestle with him? Because he was in a body. He was God incarnate, the God from everlasting. Now what that body was, I, I, I can't exactly tell you. But I believe that was a guarantee of the future incarnation. But it's certain, as we read it, that Jacob did not wrestle with the spirit. And he said, I have seen God face to face. Verse 30 says, I saw God face to face. And so this must be the Son of God. And if I should take you to another scripture further back, I could take you to Eden. And I could take you to Adam and ask you, who was it that walked and talked with Adam in the garden? No man has seen God in the effulgent glory in his effulgent glory. No man has seen God that way. And Adam was a man, wasn't he? 
Who walked with him? It was the Son of God. I can show you more. I can take you to Joshua who saw God before the battle of Jericho and take you to Daniel and to King Nebuchadnezzar who threw three young Hebrew men into the fire and he looked and there he said, there's a fourth and it is the Son of God. He is from everlasting. His goings forth are from old. He lives. Jesus Christ eternally lives. Now returning to our text in Romans 1 verse 3, the Son, Jesus Christ, was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. In Luke chapters 1 and 2, five times it refers, when speaking of the incarnation, it, uh, it refers to, to David or mentions David's connection with Jesus. In the third chapter, the human ancestry of Jesus is traced through David. Also in Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy given, and that is traced through David. It says he was the seed of David. That is a very critical aspect of the prophecy concerning Christ, the human life of Christ. He must be born of the house of David. He was born to be a king. He was born to be Israel's Messiah. And so if you were to ask any Jewish child... Who is the Messiah? Who will be the Savior? Who will be the final King of Israel? He will give you no other answer but this. He must be descended from David. He must be of the seed of David. There are no kings of Israel except those that are from David. Now that leads to a second reason that, that God became incarnate. Jesus became man to rule a kingdom. The text in Isaiah 9 says... For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He must sit on the throne of David. Now at the time that Jesus was born, there was no king in Israel. There had been one for over 400 years. But nonetheless, the Jews expected there would be another king. They expected that he would come. He would restore Israel's kingdom. He would sit on the throne. And the lineage of David must be preserved for that very fact. They wouldn't accept any other king. Nobody Will the Jews accept that one, except one who has been descended from David? The prophet said so. And if that wasn't true, we would never have all this insistence in the word of God of the accurate genealogy of Jesus Christ. At his death, Jesus didn't deny when Pilate asked, Are you a king? Yes, he was a king. A king who intends to rule. And a king who intends to rule not only in heaven, but a king who plans to have a kingdom upon this earth. Jesus will rule on the earth in a kingdom that the prophets promised. Now Jesus needed that lineage of David to fulfill that prophecy. He's not the everlasting ruler of Israel after the flesh only. Just as a person who is a Jew does not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily make him the Israel of God, so no one without faith in Jesus Christ can claim him as their king. Now he does rule everybody. But he doesn't rule everybody in the same way. Some receive his blessings. He is the king of those that believe in that sense. And so to be a part of his everlasting kingdom, you must first be a part of his spiritual kingdom. 
And you are in that kingdom only by faith. And you must believe that he's both God and man. That is eternally God. He's eternally God incarnate. You must believe he is the king to whom you owe all your allegiance. You must believe the Father made him both Lord and Christ. And he is not your savior unless he is your Lord. And you don't make him Lord. He makes you his subject. And he does it by his choice and by God-given faith. He was born to be a king, and he saves none who don't receive him as Lord. And so he said, if you don't obey him, you can't be his disciple. What did he mean? He meant, I'm the ruler. I am your Lord. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then we're familiar with the text of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now did you know Philippians 2 is also a Christmas text? In fact, you can turn to Christ in Scripture in any place, and there you can go straight to Christmas because of the necessity of the Incarnation. So I have no trouble relating anything that we read about Christ to his incarnation. Now go back to our text then in Romans 1 verse 5. It says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Obedience to the faith among all nations. Obedience. Why? Because he rules. He's the Lord of the nations. His kingdom covers the entire earth of every kindred, every tribe, and every nation. So he's God incarnate to show us the Father, God incarnate to be the ruler of the earth. I'll give you a third reason that he was God incarnate. Jesus became man to destroy the works of the devil. He proved his kingship by destroying the domain of the God of this world, that is Satan. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so he saw that man. He saw God in the flesh. He said, He takes away the sin of the world. Now let me take you back to Eden again. Jesus, the eternal Son, was in the garden with Adam. And Adam fell from his innocent state. Sin entered the world and death would pass upon all Adam's descendants. But don't you know that, as I've said... The Son of God was right there in the garden with Adam. And he promised his own birth. Just as he did to Abraham hundreds of, of years later, he said in the garden, there he says, there is a woman. This woman will conceive. Her seed will crush the head of the serpent. And her seed is the incarnate Son of God. He said the seed of the woman. He doesn't say the man. Not the man who passes the sin nature on Know the seed of the woman. And that is the promise that the Son of God would be born of a virgin. The, the God who became incarnate would come to reverse the curse and destroy the devil who deceived the woman. Indeed, the Apostle John wrote, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Do you wonder why God became incarnate? Well, this is the way that he would punish Satan for his deception. He would take care of Satan once for all and save us. At the same time, save us from our sins. 
1 John 3, 5 says, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. Now our text in Romans reveals the power by which the Son of God does this. In verse number 4, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It's the power of the resurrection from the dead. He's declared to be God with authority because he raised the dead. He raised those like Lazarus and others that we read in Scripture. But also and more importantly, he was raised from the dead when the dead have no power to do anything. The dead have no power to raise themselves. But Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, when Jesus was born, it wasn't in a palace. It's not in a, uh, he's born in a manger. His childhood wasn't spent in capitals of power such as Jerusalem or Rome. He lived in Nazareth, a mean city, a city with a bad reputation. His work was common. He was a carpenter, or likely, as we would say today, he was a stonemason. His own brothers didn't believe he was special. They didn't treat him as a king. At 33 years old, and after living a, a perfect life without sin, without, with, with compassion for others. He himself was accused of being a blasphemer, beaten and was condemned to death. Mocked and crucified on a Roman cross an inscription nailed to that cross above his head. This is the king of the Jews which was only a sarcastic statement by Pilate that he rules over all the kings of the Jews. What was his power? How would he demonstrate authority? What hope is there that he would do anything that he promised and what the prophet said of him? This is it. He is declared to be the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. If he was not raised, faith in him is vain. Justification is impossible unless by his own power he came out of the grave. So death, this domain of Satan, is defeated by the resurrection. Satan's powers to destroy life, but God's power reverses death so that Satan has no more dominion. And the power that raised Christ, it is the same power that raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And will raise and glorify our bodies at the last day. Our spiritual condition is death. It's helpless. As much as a, a corpse that lays in a tomb. We don't move. We don't act. We, we have no spiritual activity in us. How then is it possible for us to come to Christ? Paul said it is the Spirit, that is the Spirit of Christ that makes us alive. The Holy Spirit of Christ raises the spiritually inert with authority over death. Now, if you could raise yourself, if you had any power of spiritual response in you, then Christ could not be declared the Son of God by the power of the resurrection. He would be nothing more than a man because men can raise themselves. So we're brought to, to life by the one who gives spiritual life. And then and only then do we have the power to believe. John 1, 12 and 13, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, or you could say there, who came to life, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we were hopeless. We were without God in the world. Ephesians 2 verses 12 and 13 describes all of those that you read about in Romans chapter 1. He said they are without the gospel of God. They have no hope in the world. But then he follows up and says you have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. 
Think about that. Think how awful that is. Without God in the world. And all of us were that way. We were without God in the world. But then Jesus came and God was in the world. And God became incarnate in a form that he could offer himself uh, as sanctification as sanctification, and as satisfaction to the justice of the Father. And so are you looking then for another reason that God became incarnate? Then number four is that Jesus became man to substitute for the penalty of our sins. He didn't become man to save us by a moral example. If it was an example we needed, then he would have lived and never died. He would come to earth, set the example, and then ascend into heaven without ever shedding a drop of blood. The Bible says blood is essential for forgiveness. God clothed Adam with animal skins. How did he do it? By shedding blood. Isaac was saved from death on Abraham's altar. How? By a ram that was killed in his place. A Passover lamb was slain to, to save Israel. How? The blood. The blood was smeared on the door to avert the death angel. Each time there's a substitute that takes the place and dies for another. We can't pay the debt that we owe to God. And so God became man and he lived perfectly to supply the righteousness that we need to live with God. And he gives us that righteousness by faith. His death satisfied the infinite penalty of our sin. Then reason number five, Jesus became man to defeat death. Now you can live again because Jesus defeated death. Scriptures teach sacrifice and that God is satisfied with nothing but blood. The wages of sin is death, and so sin must be atoned to save us from eternal death. Death must be defeated for you to live, and only God can defeat death. He became incarnate to defeat death. Only perfect blood, unstained by sin, can defeat sin and death. And so we would say the life of Christ wasn't enough, though it is abundantly essential The life of Christ is not enough. We can even say this, that the death of Christ was not enough. Without the death of Christ, we can't be saved, but it's not enough. There must be a resurrection. He must be raised to show that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. He must be, death must be defeated only by a resurrection. Only a resurrection can do it. And so the word says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God incarnate, incarnate to show us the Father, incarnate to rule the earth, incarnate to defeat Satan, incarnate to be a substitute for the penalty of our sins, the sins that we couldn't pay, incarnate to conquer sin and death and save us alive to God. Well, I want to close this Christmas service, with one last thought. Do you see in the text, it says in verse number 6, called of Jesus Christ, and in verse 7, called to be saints. Saint, the saints, those are the sanctified ones. Saint, that means a holy one. And so the Word of God tells us that we are called as the people of God to holiness. And when it says holiness, does it mean in the Christmas season? Does it mean in the Easter season? Does it mean the holiday season or the season of holy days? Oh, the Bible teaches that you're saved to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in every 
season that you are saved to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you look back and you think, what was your life like in 2018? Think very seriously on this. Did you live as a saint? Repeating 1 John 3, 5. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Now you can read it this way. And you know that he became incarnate to take away our sins. So I would ask, has Jesus done in you what he was manifested to do? In the sixth verse, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. And so we must ask, what does the incarnate Son of God mean to you? Does this spectacular miracle of the incarnation, the infinite God becoming man, does that fill you with awe? Can you come to Christmas and not think, how could this possibly be? As we prayed just a moment ago, how does the, the Holy Spirit pack Himself, the infinite God, pack Himself into a sperm and impregnate a virgin in Galilee? How's that done? The Creator of all heaven and earth, how is that done? Does that not awe you? If you come to Christmas and you don't think like that, then I don't think you've seen the Father God. You haven't seen God because the only way you can see Him is in the truth of Jesus Christ. Born of the Virgin Mary without sin. Born to rule. Born to conquer Satan. Born to defeat death. Born to save his people from their sins. He's made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He is the God-man. Jesus Christ is the God-man. God became flesh so there would be hope in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... We come to you now thanking, thanking you for mercy and grace for Jesus who came into this world to save us from our sins. And truly, Lord, we must look at Christmas in, through the right eyes, with the right mindset, with the right frame of mind, that this is a miracle that we can't explain. It's a miracle that just takes us aback and we do stand in awe and wonder and say, how can this be? How can it be with God? Nothing is impossible. We thank you, Lord, that you did the impossible. What men could never do, you save us from our sins through the incarnate Son of God. We thank you for that. We pray for anyone here today who hasn't received Christ as Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would open their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ to see and believe and to come to you in repentant faith. We thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us, to come together as your church to celebrate. And may we leave here with that all. Jesus Christ is the God-man. We have hope because of Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.